0: John Copenhagen and Al Warren, third on KCB, 106.5 FM Los Angeles, 102.3 FM Riverside, and 1050 AM Palm
1: Springs. Hey everyone, I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago.
0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. So, welcome back into the House of Mystery, and of course, I'm Al Warren. Sitting sideline there is Mr. David Rose North Martino. <laughs> Patterson. Yeah, we'll just keep adding names until... Yeah, I added yeah. Patterson, because, you know, when like Patterson that. comes on, you could be Dave Patterson. Yeah, that's see, a good yeah. idea. See, next month see, and then, then you could pretend you were his brother or something. Yeah. You know, be, see what yeah. he does. I'll I, be I like David the, North Patterson. <laughs> I like that. You, you 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 taught him everything he knew. I, yeah. <laughs> oh, we'll just leave that one alone. Yeah. Mm. Well, so now today we've got... Uh, One of the uh, gangster brothers, he's from the uh, Goldberg gangster family, (laughs) and uh, this is the youngest one, but they're the ones to be worried about. You know, they're the Mm. ones that come out to be the most dangerous, so be careful. (laughs) Put your seatbelt on. Okay, Mr. Todd Goldberg, thanks for being on the show.
1: Happy to be here. I am, in fact, the younger, more OG Goldberg (laughs) than my brother Lee, who I know you've had on the show in the past. Yeah. I, I listened to his episode, it was nothing but lies, just terrible <laughs> lies.
2: I, I kind of knew that, you know, and yeah. I, I actually I was trying to be funny with him uh, the first time I had him on the show, and he has that little write-up he, he does about the author as, a, you know, your little write-up, and he's got this, uh, he was some sort of, uh, you know, fighter and some sort of, you know, espionage <laughs> yeah. and CIH and I said, So you know, what made you change from being a CIH and he's <laughs> like I did that for a joke, you know. <laughs> I, I was hoping you'd know that. <laughs> it was pretty funny. It's like, well, okay. Yeah, bad sense well, of that, humor.
1: It's a weird thing because I, I I know exactly what you're speaking of. And so my brother, I'm fifty one, and my brother is now sixty, and his bio on his books says things like Lee Goldberg is the New York Times number one bestselling author, blah, blah, blah. He's a former Navy SEAL and an underwater <laughs> sperm donor. Like, what? Like, why is that on your bio? Why-? And, and and listeners, if you think I'm joking, go to leegoldberg.com <laughs> and you will see it. It's true. And so at some point, like, I remember my sisters were like, you've got to talk to Lee about the underwater sperm donator. Like, what does that even mean? Why does he have that in there? I was like, I think it was a joke he made when he was 19. And he thought it was still funny. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> Turns out it's not. It's not funny. Well,
2: <laughs> well you know, someone might believe it.
1: Hmm. You know. Well, I mean, God, I would hope so. <laughs>
2: Well, you've sperm-donored? Uh, I mean, yeah. all right, let's, we're not going to talk about
1: that. Oh. The FCC is, like, you can hear them pulling up in front of the radio. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's right. <laughs> I'm, gonna get,
2: I'm getting feedback on this one. Um, well, um, so um, we haven't had you here before, but you are no. You are quite the the writer here. Like, you've got your new book, The Low Desert, Gangster Stories. Um, now, that is a fiction Kind of based on the gangster world?
1: Yeah, it's a collection of short stories that is set um, sort of nominally in my gangster universe. So I've written uh, two novels about a Chicago hitman named Sal Cupertin who is forced to hide out in Las Vegas as a rabbi, though he is not Jewish and is not a rabbi. Um, <laughs> and so the stories. In Gangsterland, or and that's Gangsterland and Gangster Nation are the first two books. I'm writing the third and concluding volume of the series right now, and then The Low Desert has characters from those books and characters sort of tendentially related to those books, and then fresh and new characters also. You don't have to have read the previous books to to read The Low Desert, um, but I wanted I wanted to explore some of these characters I'd written about but I just didn't have time to explore. In, inside the giant 400-page novels <laughs> that I was already writing. Like, well, um, and so we decided to do this short story collection. And I got to tell you, it was it was super fulfilling for me um, to write about these different characters. And, um, you know, I sort of come from a short story past. You know, as a young person, I wrote a lot of short stories. But I hadn't written one in, like, 15 years because I had the champagne problem of having, you know, tons and tons of books do. Um, so going back to that early form was was Pretty liberating for me, to be perfectly honest with you.
2: Well, what, well, what, what is it that, that, that you like about short stories yourself?
1: Um, there's a couple things. I, I like being able to try on different outfits, so to speak. Um, you know, like when you're writing a novel, that's like you are in that same voice for two years um, or 18 months or however long it takes me to write a book. You know, all these pages, you're in that same voice, doing that same thing. Writing short stories allows me to, you know, shift and move and change. You know, I can do anything in 20 pages and then do something else in another 20 pages. And so I like the immediacy of it. I like the sense of completion of it. But I also like to look at a frozen moment in someone's life. I like to look at that, that moment when someone is pushed into a corner and they have to make a decision that is going to alter the rest of their existence. And the cool thing about crime short fiction is you don't need to solve the crimes necessarily. You know, you don't, need to, you don't need to play it out the entire string. You can just show a moment when someone does something stupid and try to make that moment fulfilling for the reader. And that's fun. The, the, it's, it's a unique challenge. It's different from a novel.
2: Well, do you consider yourself more of a natural short story writer or a natural novelist? Do you have a preference for either one?
1: If I didn't like nice things, um, <laughs> but I not <didn't> like <laughs> right. If if I, if I was deeply devoted to to being poor, broke, and lonely, um, I would I would just write country songs and short stories. <laughs> um, I, I love the short story form. Um, it, it's really satisfying to me because I, I sometimes I get bored when I'm writing a novel, mm-hmm. um, and so I would write short stories and be able to you know write about a million different people over and over and over again, and that would be that would be great. But the reality is, is as, a, as a crime writer, you just can't make a living like yeah. that. Um, and I, I mean, I love writing novels, too. But I don't, if you could make a living writing short stories, I don't think I would have written 16 novels or whatever at this point. I think I, I probably have split it evenly with, you know, eight novels and eight collections of stories.
2: Well, your characters, you said you love writing about them. So how how are your characters for you? Like, where do they come from, and, and, and how do you relate to them? I say that because we talk to a lot of fiction writers, of course, and a lot of them will say they're like their family, they're like their kids. They're, they have these descriptions about these characters that they've created.
1: Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, of course, nothing that that a writer creates, doesn't have a piece of them. And it would be silly to ever suggest otherwise, like, Hey, I built it. Of course, there's some part of me. In it. If I were to, if I were to build the sofa, I would break a nail inside of it, you know? So there's some part of me in that or I'd spit on it in anger, you know, not that I'm a big spitter, but, um, <laughs> in anger anyway. Um, so of course there's always a little part of, of me that's in there because characters have my obsessions or my desires or my, my skewed point of view of looking at the world. But, you know, I really come from a place that, for me, character comes more than anything from setting. Um, so invariably, I, I look at a place and I imagine, like, who lives there? So I'll, I'll give you a, a good uh, concrete, for instance. Um, in the low desert, there's a story called uh, The Royal Californian. And it's about a guy who has been shot in the foot, who pulls up, to a hotel in Indio, California called the Royal Californian and um, does some nefarious stuff. And that's based on a hotel that I drive by all the time called the Royal Plaza Inn. And every time I drive by the Royal Plaza Inn, I think, who the F would stay there? (laughs) (laughs) And there's a bar and a restaurant that's connected to it. For a while, the bar was called Cactus Pete's. And then they did a renovation, and now it's called Steers. <laughs> <laughs> Not neither of which sounds at all appealing, right? Yeah. Um, but they have karaoke, and they have cheap steaks, according to the sign. And so I w- like whenever I drive by, I'm like, man, who number one, who's who's staying there, and then who's coming there after work to do karaoke? It's like, hey, I gotta get it to Cactus Beats. <laughs> it's sick. <laughs> Honey, I'm not coming home. I'm I'm singing Song Sung Blue at the peaks. <laughs> um and so I had uh I'd been asked by um uh, Akashic Books to provide a short story for uh a collection called Palm Springs Noir. And I hadn't written anything and it was getting close to deadline time, and I was driving past the World Plaza Inn and having that same thought of, man, who stays there and sings karaoke there? And then all of a sudden it's like <laughs> ding 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 ding. <laughs> Write about who stays there and who sings karaoke there. And that then went to a, a darker spot in my head, which is that for twenty years I've been trying to write a short story about a person whose karaoke song is Brick by Ben Folds Five, <laughs> which is a song about teenage abortion. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, like the worst, the absolute worst karaoke song you could ever have. Like, here's one for everybody, you know. <laughs> American Pie, and then Brick by Ben Folds 5. <laughs> um, and so suddenly all of my worlds converged as I was sitting there at the stoplight, and I was like, I'm going to write about sort of a criminal karaoke singer whose song is Brick by Ben Folds 5, who's been shot in the foot and has to get out of the Royal Plaza Inn. And I drove home, and I wrote the story, and it ended up being in um, – Palm Springs Noir, and then it's in uh, the Low Desert, and then it just got selected for uh, Best American. Um, so sometimes my ideas come from old places, but most of the time it's like I'm trying to imagine who fits into a specific place or setting.
2: So do you put up Lee there at that, at that place when he comes <laughs> to town? that town?
1: I'm a good brother. I let Lee stay in my guest room. Um, he, he was just here. And the so the amusing thing about my brother, there's a lot, uh, <laughs> but he's on the keto diet. And every meal that he eats, he has to let you know, I'm eating all this bacon because I'm on the keto diet. Like, no, <laughs> he, yeah. Keep telling us. And then, like, he'll eat a bar and he'll say, there's no carbs in this bar. Like, that's, <laughs> that's great, Lee. I'm going to eat a Snickers like an American. <laughs>
2: That'd uh, be interesting. That's quite the family. Um, well, <laughs> so it seems to me like you have a lot of humor and a little bit of sarcasm or s- cynicism in your in your personality. Um, a little bit. Just a little. A little bit. Yeah, Kind of like, I, I understand this. But do you place that in a lot of your noirs or your books as well?
1: Yeah, I mean the reason I write crime fiction instead of the super sad literary fiction that I started my career doing (laughs) um, is the ability to write about the darkest parts of our society. You know, I I think the best crime fiction hangs a mirror to society and forces you to look at it. But when doing so, it's impossible not to see the absurdity of this world. Um, You know, we live in a, in a world filled with, irony and absurdity and <laughs> stupidity and like the banality of evil you know it's like the evil that we encounter these days is just so stupid and moronic and obvious and so I want to poke fun of those things and writing noir or crime fiction really allows me to to do that to have characters that have a, a strong sense of cynicism and that sort of thing. And particularly in my, in my gangster books where I'm writing about an absurd situation, you know, writing about a fake rabbi in Las Vegas <laughs> who uses the skills that he learned as a hitman to run a, a synagogue. Like, that's absurd. But it turns out that the skills you need to be a, a really good hitman and the skills you need to be a really good rabbi are not so different. <laughs> like, you know, the ability to gather people around you and make them trust you and and guide them to the next life. You know, like, <laughs> that's, that's the two main jobs of a hitman and a rabbi. <laughs> um, and so it's an absurd thing. Um, and so I, I, I like to play with those things. And then the short stories, um, I think I probably do it more than in the novels. Because I think the short story form actually allows for it in an easier fashion. The, the juxtaposition of the dark and the comic, I think, work better in a short space than they do in a big space where you're really sort of emotionally connected to a character.
2: Well, you know, you're a natural with humor. Uh, do you feel um, that you need, like, I guess, like, comedic timing to create humor in prose? Kind of like a stand-up comedian has to have some sort of uh, comedic timing to to uh, make a joke land.
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. And, and here's the thing. There's a lot of people who aren't funny. <laughs> <laughs> like, a lot. Yeah. And... When they attempt to be funny in their writing, it doesn't come mm-hmm. off. And it's just like, well, that's that's like an awkward tourette <laughs> thing that that person just said. And, and, I mean, actually, I see this sometimes in my students. So I, uh, I direct the MFA program at, at UC Riverside. And so I have, I have, you know, 100 grad students in my charge. And when I'm reading their work or reading people who are submitting to get into the program, a lot of times, I'll see people write things that they think are funny, and it's inappropriate at the moment, or they're not, or they're not funny. <laughs> and you have to figure out a way to say to that person, if if you're actually working with them, like, "Hey, your skill set is uh, drama. Your skill set is romance. Your skill set is horror. Your skill set is not, you know, one-liners." Mm. And I don't think that I write jokes. You know, I think I write about funny situations. Um, and even that is, that is in fact more about timing because you're setting up those situations, maybe 10 scenes before, like there's, there's an ongoing joke in the gangster land books about how a rabbi could, could, quote Bruce Springsteen or Neil Young. And if he said it with enough gravity that the, the people in the synagogue would just think that it's from the Talmud. <laughs> so like, if you say to someone, um, you, you know, um, I'm just sick of sitting here trying to write this book. Like that's the Talmud. Like that is the Talmud. yes. Like or it's dancing in the dark. You know, it's like yeah. One, one or one or the other. Um, and and so that's a joke that I use throughout these things, throughout the the books, in order for it to play off in a, in a moment when it doesn't work. Um, and so all of that requires some thinking and some timing. Um, but comedy's hard. Yeah. Yeah. Because also, not everyone shares my sense of humor, um, you know, which is wrong. Like, get on board. Um, and so sometimes, not that I often do this, but sometimes I'll go look at my reviews on Amazon at 3 o'clock in the morning. And a person will say, this is Harris. How dare he write about a fake Jew? How dare he? Who is he to write about these things? I'm like, dude, it's, it's, a, it's comedy. Um, though I will say I, 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 get the opportunity oddly enough to speak at synagogues, which is not something I ever sort of imagined. Cause I'm, I'm like a, I'm a mayonnaise and corned beef Jew. Mm. Like I am not, I'm not observant in the least. Like I'm a beastie boys and meal it. Um, and so I get invited to speak at synagogues about these books. And I always ask, like, if you had read this book about the fake Jewish rabbi and the, author's last name was O'Neill would you have invited that person to this to speak at the synagogue and I was like no it'd be anti-semitic and like and, and in my mind I'm like it would be anti-Semitic. but like that's that's the allowance that I get by um by by virtue of my birth well
2: it, but this this brings up the next thing and when you say that about your students sometimes they they do the one-liner it's just not appropriate do you yourself worry about the political correctness or the appropriateness of let's say let's say people now because you know you know in this noir sort of feeling um, it's very dated in a sense um, in the way people act and treat each other do you know what I mean like how they behave Right. so are you does that ever do, do you ever rethink things and decide not to do it because of the current situation?
0: Um, I
1: don't know. Probably. I don't even know if it's conscious, you know? Um, because, well, I'll tell you, part of me is, is like, um, I get really turned off by serial killer books, for instance. And I swear this is going to relate to to your question.
2: Well, I've only got 25 of them. So, (laughs) (laughs)
1: um, and, the reason is serial killer books are just about pretty blonde women getting killed, hmm. and then uh, some dude solving that. So what's wrong? And with I that?
0: think <laughs> I think serial
1: killer books perpetuate violence toward women. Um, I think it turns violence towards women into uh, entertainment, and so that that bothers me. Um, it didn't used to bother me when I was twenty years old because I was a moron. But I'm 51 years old, and I have a wife and sisters and nieces and friends, and I'm part of the human race, of which the other half happens to be women. I just think, like, well, women should not be sport. And so when I'm thinking about my writing now, if I'm going to hurt someone or kill someone, there has to be a ripple that comes from it. You can't just be like you're shooting a red shirt on the planet, and they fizzle away, and that person's life never mattered. And so in that way, I am conscious of like, okay, this violence that I'm putting into the world, why am I doing it? What does it mean? And does it have some lasting effect on the characters in my, in my books? Because I don't want the violence that I write about to be cartoonish. Um, I want there to always be a ripple that hits the shore somewhere. If you drop that pebble into the water. So. As I've gotten older, that's been something that I've thought about more and more often. Is like, what am I doing with all this violence that I write about? Like, how do I make it so it's not just sort of, you know, porn? You know, because if I'm going to write porn, I'm going to write porn. Yeah. Um. I don't want to just be violent porn. Um. Not that I've ever written a sex scene. Yeah. Um. Because I'm incapable of doing that. <laughs> um. All my sex scenes are always the same, and then they had sex. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yep. Um. So, yeah, I mean, I, I probably do think about that a little bit. And, of course, I, I, I probably am more aware of making my books um, not just middle-aged white dudes named Todd, you know, and try to try to expand the world. And I think I've always done that pretty well over the course of uh, my career. But, you know, it's, it's, it's a weird time. You know, it, 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 there's nothing wrong with being sensitive to people's emotions. You know, right. I, I, think it's, I think that's a good thing.
2: Exactly. I mean, you know, there's nothing wrong with it, but I just wonder if it makes you alter what you
1: write. I don't, I don't think so. I mean, look, I'm writing, I'm writing some weird. Oh my. Don't <laughs> oh, pardon me. <laughs> Sorry. OCC. Um, I'm, I'm writing some weird stuff. Like in the low desert, there's, you know, someone dies in every single story in that book, I think, and in violent and mysterious ways. Um, but I got news for you. Right now, if someone just died in a violent and mysterious way in whatever city that you're living in, whatever city you're listening to this, violence and death and murder are, um, are as American as baseball and apple pie. Oh, I would love some apple pie.
2: <laughs> well, they, uh, there's, there's, no, <laughs> there's nothing like that in L.A. What are you talking about?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, this is such a funny thing. Sometimes I'll write something and I'll get a letter. I mean, actually, I get a lot of letters. Um, but if, if I hurt an animal in a book, oh, my God, the letters are coming fast and furious. I can kill 75 human beings. No one says a word. You hurt an animal, they're coming for you.
2: I'm one of those guys that sends you a letter.
1: <laughs> I, the last letter I got was from a gun guy. The gun guys send a lot of letters. Like, gun guys would never talk like your people talk. Yeah. <laughs> like, But here's some suggestions for, for new dialogue. It's like, hey, thanks, Steve. <laughs> yeah. I appreciate it.
2: Yeah, well, how does, how, you know, because the world's changed. Now in the last 10 years, I I, I get a lot of, um, let's say, emails and, and uh, things from people <laughs> that are not mm-hmm. necessarily the nicest because they don't like my sense of humor or they don't like who I am or whatever it is, whoever they think I am. And, right. and, and it's really increased in the last five, six years. So I wonder, it's got to be the same in, in your world. And people have such access to you um, that they never had before. Um, right. How, how do you handle that? Or do you, do you just totally avoid it?
1: Well, the majority of the letters I get um, are positive, thank God. Um, and the ones that are negative are negative in a very specific way, which is someone will write and say, I was turned off by the violence in your book, to which I will respond. You bought a book where the cover is a man turning into a gun. (laughs) What did you think was going to happen? Like, if you're turned off by a book called, because of the violence, and you bought a book called Gangster Nation, (laughs) Did you think it was going to be a cat mystery? Did you think, think someone's really super intuitive tabby was going to find the missing caterer? Like the, the book is going to be filled with MacGuffins? It's called Gangster Nation. Um, so I respond in kind. <laughs> and then I don't often hear back from those people. Um, but most of the time, you know, what I get via email or, you know, via tweet or direct message or whatever um, is positive. Which is, which is wonderful, because if you're going to go to the trouble to contact me, um, it's so much better to, <laughs> to say something nice. Where I hear from people more often in negative ways, I, I tend to do a lot of, um, I write a lot of book criticism, so I'm a book critic for USA Today, um, and I do a lot of op-ed writing and things of that nature. And so if I have an op-ed that ends up running outside of California, for instance, um, hits the national wire, and it's, on, you know, uh, an issue of, you know, national importance. Like a few years ago, I, I wrote a, a an op-ed that said, living in California is a moral choice. And it ended up going across the country through Gannett. And, oh boy, did I hear from some people. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, it, people did not agree with my morals. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, no, that's, you know, that's asking for it.
1: Yeah, it really. And to be honest, guys, I wrote it in such a way that it was provocative and asking for it. But that's what you do when you write an op-ed; you're being provocative.
2: What is it you look for when you write a book yourself, or even read someone's books, and you're going to uh, do some sort of a editorial or an opinion or review? What is it you think makes a good book?
1: Oh gosh. That's a tough one. You, you, you know, it, you don't often don't know until you're in it. I, I mean, I think, I think of course the key thing is, you know, I read books not to learn something, but to feel something. And in general, I want to feel first and foremost, empathy. I want to be moved in some way or imagine myself in that person's situation. Um, so I want, I want entertainment. I want I want emotion. Uh, I want authenticity of voice. Um, I want things to make sense. Um, you know, these are these are all sort of, um, you know, easy things. And then there's the stuff that sort of exists beyond human language. <laughs> you know, I, there's that ethereal falling into the world of fiction. There's nothing better, right, than reading a book and losing sense of time and space, right? Yeah, That's that's why we do it. Um, it's, you know, you, you come home from your crappy job. You sit in an overstuffed chair because they don't make understuffed chairs anymore. Um, <laughs> and you read a big thick novel that will, you know, take you away from the troubles of your life. If a book can't capture me like that, you know, I will often give it several chances as I'm reading, if I'm going to review it to see if it's just, if it's just me, you know, like, Oh, maybe I'm tired or bored or angry, or, you know, my dog peed on the floor and I stepped in it. Um, you know, all these things can can play a role. Um, and so I, I, I make sure that whatever I'm experiencing in the book, if it's negative, is not because of you know something going on with me personally, um, that it's some function of the book itself. Um, but you know I'm not I'm not really looking often to, to say that a book doesn't work. It, it hurts me when I have to give a book a negative review because I know how hard it is to write them. But that being said, if a book doesn't work, um, the you know the role of the the critic is to is to be honest, and so I am, and I always say the reasons why I think something doesn't work. And I don't often suggest ways to fix it because that's not that's not my job. that's my job in the classroom that's not my job in the Los Angeles Times.
2: So what do you want people to get out of your book like especially like you look at the new one with the short stories, did you set out with some sort of a did you have a picture in your mind of what it would be at the end and what people would be getting out of this book
1: yes um <sighs> It's so funny. It's almost easier to compare it in my mind to a record than to another book or something. Um, It's like I wanted to write Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska, you know, like I wanted I wanted the literary equivalent of Nebraska, that feeling of a specific place and that the people that you are meeting in that specific place could only live in that place. And the problems that they have could only come from that place. And so I really wanted to paint a picture of this region, uh, of the, you know, the desert southwest. And, of course, there's a couple stories that take place um, outside of it, one in Chicago and one in uh, Las Vegas. Um, but I, I, wanted, I wanted to paint a picture of, of, this, of this region. And I wanted the people that are reading it to understand that this desert paradise, this vacation paradise, is a place that is always trying to kill you. You, we don't belong in the desert. The desert doesn't want us. The desert is trying to kill us every single day. It's 120 degrees, and if my, my air conditioning goes out, I'm dead. <laughs> I'm dead. <laughs> like That's what will happen is if I don't go to the neighbor's house or the Hampton Inn. If I stay in my house and it's 120 degrees, I will die. Or if I go outside and I step on a scorpion and there's no one around, what's going to happen is... I'm going to die. Or all these snakes that are on the other side of my fence that are on the golf course. If I encounter one and they bite me, I'm going to die. Or the pack of coyotes that every night stalks my backyard and I hear them screaming like a pack of Airbnb tourists out there. <laughs> <laughs> they want to kill me. And so this this notion of this, this paradise where I live, uh, this vacation paradise... Juxtaposed with the reality of the place, which is that humans shouldn't live here, the desert doesn't want you, and the desert will reclaim you. You know, this is the other, the the fascinating thing. You know, when the recession hit um, in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, and there were all these housing developments that got built out here in the Coachella Valley or uh, out towards like uh, towards the Inland Empire, Hammett, places like that, that were sitting empty. It took the desert like two months to reclaim it. And all of a sudden, these places that were built to look like, you know, lavish, uh, gated communities were overrun with the desert. The coyotes were there. The owls were there. The snakes and monsters and meth addicts, they were all there. (laughs) Um, And so I love this idea that where I live is an impermanent paradise that's always trying to drive you out. And I love to write about the people who live here. Um, Because if you come on vacation, you know, This is the thing. Have you guys ever had the experience on vacation where you're at a hotel and you're like, everyone is so nice here. It's so beautiful here. Everyone's bringing me drinks. This is the best. I want to move here. Those people hate you. The people bringing you drinks, the people bringing you that that cheeseburger by the pool, they want you to drown. They hate you. They hate you. It's true. (laughs) And... And so I love this, I, this, this way that we as humans, when we're on vacation, just sort of like everyone's just so happy to see me. <laughs> it's just their pleasure that I'm here and they get to serve me. And that's what this entire area that I live in is based on is, is the, you know, resort living idea that, ah, it's so beautiful. Everyone's so nice. We all want you to leave. It was, it was uh, Coachella and Stagecoach all this month in the desert. And so every weekend, hundreds of thousands of people came to town, and all I wanted them to do was to turn around and go home. <laughs> get, get out of my Trader Joe's. I need my chocolate-covered almonds. Get out of my Trader Joe's.
2: Well, you know, it sounds like you be, like being in a place where you're not wanted.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm wanted. They want me here. I'm a, I'm a middle-aged Jewish man living in the desert. This is my fate. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah, well, more could you ask for, right? I
1: mean, if I'm lost for a little bit longer, I'm building yeah, 40 years. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, now, do you
2: put um, a theme or a subtext in your stories and in the book? And maybe it's not intentional, but it comes out at the end. It comes out naturally, let's say, when you're writing it. Do you find that true or not? No. No.
1: Um, no, I mean... I, like you never walk into the bookstore and ask the person behind the counter like do you have any books with a good theme <laughs> <laughs> like and so i've always thought of theme as sort of um you know the, the the provenance of of the of the english teachers let them figure out the themes i don't i don't ever really know because i'm i'm always writing the same essential story in a way which is you know is someone um An accumulation of their worst days or not (laughs) you know that that seems to be what I what I tend to write Um, and you know at what point does someone break bad Um, and at what point does a bad person make decide to be good these are things I I think I I tend to write about a lot but things we all tend to write about a lot I mean this is this is the these are the seven conflict plots that have existed our entire lives Um, but, you know, I think subtextually um, in these Gangsterland books and then also somewhat in the low desert, a lot of what I'm talking about has to do with, um, with faith. Um, you know, I'm writing about a guy who pretends to be a rabbi for so long that he becomes a rabbi and, and begins to take on Judaism as essentially um, the one divining purpose of his life that he'd never had before. And, and like I said, I'm not I'm not a terribly religious person. Um, but what I realized at some point um, in my in right before I started to write Gangsterland, I had read sort of all of the Jewish texts. So I read the Talmud, the Torah, all these books on Jewish eschatology. I have this shelf next to my desk here that's, you know, every book on Judaism ever written, um, you know, all the stuff on the Holocaust and everything. So all this stuff um, because I wanted to know what my fake rabbi would know when he knew it, essentially. And so reading about that and recognizing that I didn't really, that I hadn't paid homage to the struggle of my forefathers to get me to this point where I can literally build my house on making jokes about Judaism. (laughs) Um, When they had had, you know, they're being chased out of Ukraine by pogroms in 1919, like, why? Why hadn't I spent more time understanding what that was like? Um, and so I did that. I did that work. And so, while I'm not religious, I think my my understanding culturally of Judaism, and of the value of faith in something, comes through subtextually, uh, at least in these gangster books.
2: Well, that's interesting. So the process of writing the book actually made a change in you.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, when I started to write Gangsterland, so Gangsterland came out in 2014, and I started to write it in 2012. Um, both of my parents were dead. Um, all of my grandparents had already died. And it, as, as everyone experiences, I suddenly found myself on top of the family tree um, versus just being a branch. And... I remember very vividly my brother saying, we're orphans, we're orphans now. <laughs> and I'm like, we're not orphans, Lee. We're like, we're adults. You're an orphan if you're, I think, under 18. <laughs> like, after your parents die, when you're in your 40s and 50s, it's just called being alive. <laughs> um, but my brother kept saying, I feel like I've been orphaned. I was like, okay, well, there's there's someone you can pay $30 for that can help you with this. Um, but... That sort of realization really got me to, to look into um, to Judaism more closely, but to understand the struggles that my family had made to get me to this point in my life. I, I, wrote, um, I wrote an essay for the LA Times right around Hanukkah last year about um, a menorah that I had inherited from my mother, who had inherited it from her mother, um, and it was broken. And so we couldn't use it this year. And I wrote this essay in the LA Times about a memory that I had about the menorah, but also a memory I had had of sitting on my grandfather's lap and having him ask me if I knew what it meant to be Jewish. And then him sort of trying to explain it to me when I was seven years old. And it's really an essay about memory, but it's also an essay about the inconsistency of memory. And because I couldn't remember if I was seven, or if I was 10, if it was in Walla Walla or L.A. or, you know, all these all these different things. The point being that it doesn't really matter because the conversation stayed in my head and it became the question that has taken me all the way through these books. Like, what does it mean to be Jewish? Do you have to be Jewish to be Jewish? Um, in the course of a little crime novel um, that might seem like a weighty existential question but it ends up being the thing that drives this character through these novels, and in effect, the stories in the low desert as well.
2: Well, it also seems like you're willing to kind of, I guess, uncover the truth in the story, no matter what it is.
1: Yeah, I'd say that's true. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, more often than not, it's an emotional truth, mm. right? Um, you know, I'm content not to solve a crime in something that I write, um, be it a short story or a novel provided that the the character who you most care about comes to some sort of understanding of the emotional truth of their lives. Because I think that's satisfying to us. Like, some things don't get solved, right? Like, how many times do you watch one of those shows at 2 o'clock in the morning on the ID network, and they're like, in the fall of 1974, a body was found. And and then you're like, oh, well, we're going to find out who did it. And at the end, they say, no one has yet found the body. If you have information, you're like, why, why did I watch this? <laughs> this is totally unsatisfying Feel because closure. because there's no there's no one that you're identifying mm-hmm. with who has sort of um, emotional closure in this either. It, you are both the investigator and and the witness at that point. And you're like, well, this sucks. <laughs> I don't want to watch an unsolved murder. We like to watch the ones that are solved because it it puts order to chaos, Damn. and then we can go to sleep at night. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Well, except for the desert's trying to kill you.
1: (laughs) Right. I'm I'm always looking for for truth. Um, I find truth to be be very calming, in fact.
2: (laughs) I guess it's because you know what you're dealing with. Yeah.
1: And, you know, it's so funny. Like, over the course of the last two years, I don't know if you guys remember, there was this plague. (laughs) Uh, A
2: plague? Yeah. yeah. What what was that? Yeah.
1: And so I was writing The Low Desert um, during the plague. Like, the the, I I finished The Low Desert in um, December of 2020. And then, oh, no, I'm sorry. That's not correct. I finished it in January, or I'm sorry, April of 2020 is when I turned it in, Um, the last rewrites. Um, And then the book came out in February of 2021. And so already I was feeling... um, a sense as a writer of like, man, what a, Like, what a, does any of this matter? You know, like, <laughs> is anyone going to be alive by the time this gets published? And if so, like, I better have something important to say. And so I tried to, in the book, like, actually have the stories mean more than just a simple crime story. Um, you know, have some larger purpose behind it. There, there are three stories in the book about um, a cocktail waitress named, Uh, Tanya who adopts a child from Russia named Natalia and then Natalia disappears and I had never solved what happened to Natalia prior to that book like I knew that these were stories I was going to write and my editor was like you gotta gotta tell the reader what happens you need to satisfy this because we might all be dead (laughs) by the time we get to the end of this book and they're going to want to know what happened and so I wrote this third story um, which I won't, I won't reveal what it is so that listeners, when they stumble on it, because they read in order, um, will be surprised to find out what happened to her. Um, it was very satisfying. Even though it's a dark ending, it's like, well, okay, there's a period, not an ellipsis in this story. And that that feels good. You know, that finally feels good. It feels satisfying.
2: Well, you know, I, I heard the, that the plague was fr- fake. So, <laughs> you know it's not true
1: all my dead friends have been telling me that it's <laughs> not real
2: yeah yeah <laughs> when they say do you think we've done too much and it's like well ask the dead people
1: <laughs> yeah uh, look i love ivermectin in a milkshake as much as the next guy <laughs> but i'm so boosted i could i could power the space shuttle
2: well yeah and you drink a cup of bleach every day <laughs> oh i'm insane um well, that's Remember,
1: that guy was president, Oh, please, Jeez.
2: you know, it, it, but, you know, the, the, the one thing that was good about that guy being president was um,
1: this should be good. I'm eager to find well, out the,
2: the, that you realize that true life is far stranger than the fiction. And that was a perfect example. Yeah. Of the way people behave. Like, well, you, cause you could have wrote a lot of these things. Let's say it never happened and you decide mm-hmm. to write a book about uh, some sort of plague or pandemic and you have like the anti-maskers, the chippers, the flattered. You have all this stuff going on at the same time. President telling you to drink bleach. You have this whole thing. And if someone was to read that, they'd go, oh, this is a bunch of bull. This could never be. This is so unrealistic. Right. But after being through it in reality, it's like, wow, it can happen.
1: Well, and that's the that's the thing that makes writing crime fiction so hard now, particularly like any sort of mob stuff. So I'm going to drop a huge name here. Are you guys ready for this? Oh, okay, here comes. I was speaking to Congressman Adam Schiff the other day. Whoa. Boom, Goldberg, Shifty Schiff. <laughs> um, he was uh, he was at the Los Angeles Times Festival of Books, and there was a party uh, after the book prizes where he had won the book prize for Current Interest and. I was like, I got to talk to this dude, like, dude, help save America. And he was asking me, you know, what do I write about? And I said, I write mob fiction. And I said, but, you know, interestingly enough, I had written this article about how Trump, um, you know, stole all the wrong things from mob bosses and never realized, like, none of the mob bosses that you're stealing from are free. They're dead or in prison <laughs> or, or, you know, Godfather 3 happened and no one wants to see that again. And Schiff said, yeah, he really didn't like it when I compared him to a mob boss when I was impeaching him. And I was like, you'd think he would have been flattered by that. (laughs) He doesn't dress like that because he doesn't like the mafia.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I tell you, he couldn't get, uh, he couldn't, he's a gangster all the way.
1: Yeah, but the, the absurdity of the world makes crime fiction all the more difficult because now everything seems possible. Like whatever Elmore Leonard had cooked up. Thirty years ago where it's you know doofus criminals who can't stop tripping over their own feet like hey welcome to the United States government
2: (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah it's pretty sad sad situation been through so what what do you draw from but um for yourself like you do you find yourself ever in a place where you're not feeling it you can't write or you're not sure what you want to write and if so what do you do
1: um, not really. Um, part of it is is uh, simple, which is like, oh, the bank still wants me to pay for this house. <laughs> so <laughs> if I don't write this book, I, they're eventually going to want the house. Um, so there's there's that tangible part of it. Um, but you know, I don't really concede that writer's block exists. Um, this, that's something that the novelist Richard Ford said years ago. I, I remember in an interview, they someone had asked him, "Like, how do you deal with writer's block?" And he said, "I don't conceive that it exists." And I, I like that because if if it if you think about it in terms of other people's lives and jobs, no plumber comes to work and is like, "Can't work on your toilet. I got plumber's block. <laughs> Just yeah. can do it today. It's not working. Can't get that thing out of that hole. Not because I don't know how." but I just can't do it. It's like, it's like as, as writers, we got to get over ourselves sometimes, you know, like we, it, it's a mental block that's born out of insecurity and fear. Um, and so what I tend to do if I'm feeling, if I'm not feeling it, and then, of course there are days when I'm not feeling it, of course, um, you know, I'll take a walk or I'll read. Reading is a great way for me to, to get back into it and want to write some more. um, And also, I'm not afraid to write crappy stuff and then go back the next day, delete it all and write something new. Um, I I think also because I had been um, a journalist and had to write columns on deadline every single week. That really taught me not to be precious with things um, where it's like, oh, the newspaper is going to print. Your column is a thousand words. You've written three. Your column is due at four. It's 325. You need to find 997 words about a funny thing that happened to you this week. Go. Um, And you do it. You know, you do it. And so I I think that has helped me as a novelist. Now, all that being said, am I going to miss my deadline on my my book? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Because, of course, sometimes you take the wrong turn or you realize, like, oh, man, I spent a month writing the same 20 pages over and over and over again. I should have gone back and just rewrote it later, just put an X there. But I'm a little obsessive, and I can't stop. Um, but I have a great editor, and uh, having a great editor um, that I've worked with for years on my books, uh, that, that's sort of a great sort of safety net, because I know that for me now, in fact, the writing of books is actually a collaborative process. I'm, I am starting out with something, and then I'm going to hand it to my editor, and my editor is going to turn it into David um you know that old that old saying like how do you, how do you carve david you know take away everything that isn't david um, and so my editor is like he takes away all the stuff that isn't gangster land and be, it becomes gangster land um and and so i've i've learned to trust that process and that's been very helpful also
2: do you think that the um like when we were just talking about all this stuff you know uh, trump covid and all these things does that kind of stress get into your writing somehow seep in
1: oh absolutely i mean it's hard not to you know it's hard not to feel the same fear that all of us do on a on a daily basis you know when when the pandemic first hit um you know i was in the middle of of edits on this book and and i had a couple more stories to write and like i said a moment ago part of it was like well what's the use of writing if i'm going to be dead in six months you know why am i finishing this book when all it's going to read it are the scorpions and the roaches provided that we put it in the language they understand, um, <laughs> yeah. which I, I hope they do. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a human being, you know, I, am I'm not immune to these things. Um, and you know, in terms of the writing itself, you know, I, I didn't, I don't know if, if too much of it seeped in there, there's, there's one story in the book where I mentioned someone watching the news and, and the person asks themselves, should I be worried about these sick people in China? Um, and that's just sort of like an ode to the time period of when that story is, because this, the story takes place um, at the end of 2019. Um, but I, I think that it's natural that there's some things of claustrophobia in, in, the, in the book. There's some, um, some notions of you know, conspiracy theory type things, you know, someone who believes something counter to the reality that they're living in. Uh, but that's also just, you know, that's endemic of living in our culture right now. If you're not, if you're not being realistic with how people live their lives, your fiction is going to feel anachronistic. Like, everyone knows someone in their family or in their peer group who's a crazy conspiracy theorist. Everyone knows one. Um, it, it used to be that it's just like, that was your crazy uncle. Yeah, but now your crazy uncle is really crazy and is emboldened by a guy named Tucker. <laughs> like, of all the people to be emboldened by, like, oh, I'm going to be emboldened by a guy named Tucker. Ugh. Anyway, um, so, and then, of course, the internet has shown anyone that um, whatever you're into, there's a million other people that are into it also. And so I think I have to reflect those things in my writing. And I think some of that comes through in in, in some of the stories that I wrote in The Low Desert in the sense of the claustrophobia and the paranoia that people have. Um, but I don't I don't only want to write about what, is happening around me at at the current time i really want to talk about um the nature of of violence and criminality throughout time um because when i write about organized crime specifically it's a very american notion you know the 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 reason that we love organized crime is that we like the idea that there's these people in fancy suits getting away with it you know like have have either of you been to the mob museum in las vegas before no oh it's really cool (laughs) It's in this old courthouse in downtown Las Vegas where they had the hearings in the 1950s, you know, with Estes Kefauver and, and, you know, all the, all the crime families and everything. They've turned it into this beautiful museum. Um, but it is about the mob. It is about the mafia. There's not a companion museum for the Crips and the Bloods. There's not a companion museum for the Mexican mob. There's not a companion museum for, for the Russian mob. And so it's like, wow, what is happening here? Like, what what's culturally is driving us to want to spend time with well-dressed white people with guns who get away with crimes? It's like, hmm, that's something for the sociologists to look at, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but the unusual thing, I, I mean, the whole place is unusual, but it's well worth a trip if you're if you're in Las Vegas, is that you can get married at the Mob Museum. And so the last time I was there... I was I did a talk and I was signing books and it was super cool. And then there was like a wedding of 150 people, all dressed like gangsters and and femme fatales, going upstairs to have a wedding. And I was like, what What is going on? What are we celebrating here? You know, these are kill. We're like you're dressed up like a killer on a wedding with a femme fatale. Like, what is? This is <laughs> not going to work out. Like, you You guys are doomed. I hope you. <laughs> registered somewhere where you get cash when you return this stuff. This is a marriage doomed to failure. <laughs> so all of those things I think play a role in my mind about um about the culture of organized crime. So it's not just about this moment that we're in, it's about the history of of our obsession with it. Mm.
2: So now where do people find you? I mean, but there's people that are going to listen to this and want to Come get you so. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, are you social media
1: left on <laughs> website
2: address, phone number? What do you want to give out?
1: Well, this is the easy thing. I'm very easy to find if you just look for Todd Goldberg on every single social media platform except for TikTok because I'm not much of a dancer. Wow. Um, you can find me, and it's Todd with one D. And you can go to toddgoldberg.com. You can buy my books wherever fine books are sold. Um, I am your garden variety famous novelist, guys. I am ubiquitous, <laughs>
2: and and it's you can find his novels even where not fine
1: books are so Yeah, like the dime store. Yeah. I always wish like, dime stores don't exist anymore. I always wanted to be in a dime store.
2: That would On be the like, rack. where can I get your
1: books? <laughs> dime store, yeah, the rack. Of dime store, like Mac Boland, yeah. Todd Boldberg. Eh, maybe, maybe it doesn't roll off the tongue.
2: Well, you know, just change your name for that that stand,
1: you know. Todd Gold. Yeah, Gold, you know.
2: <laughs> anyway, well, it's always a pleasure uh, talking to a Goldberg, Goldberg, and uh, really appreciate it. So, of course, the book we're kind of promoting here is The Low Desert Gangster Stories. It's about Todd Goldberg and his family. Um, <laughs> and Todd Goldberg was our guest. Thank you.
1: My pleasure, guys.
2: Take care. Thanks, You've
0: been listening to the House of Mystery radio show.